Well, good evening to you all. Very nice to be with you again. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Responsibility and the subtitle is What Are We Responsible For? So to begin, in Genesis it says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the earth, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So having dominion over all the earth, and the animals thereon, man is responsible for the whole world. James Allen, in his book, As a Man Thinketh, says, As a being of power, intelligence and love, and the lord of his own thoughts, man holds the key to every situation and contains within himself the transforming and regenerative agency by which he may make himself what he wills. So, as a being of power, intelligence and love, his own state is within his own power and therefore is his responsibility. We are masters of ourselves and therefore responsible for ourselves. Nobody else is responsible for us, ultimately. Even when weak and in an appalling state, we are still masters of ourselves, but now foolish masters, who fail to govern ourselves properly. As man, we are created, but as individuals, we are self-made. Everybody is self-made. We are responsible for our body, mind and heart, and thus for our actions, thoughts and feelings. We are responsible for the consequences of what we feel, think and do. It may be very difficult for us to see what the previous actions were that produced the consequences we are facing now, but that does not change the fact of the matter. We are all free to choose all the time. Nobody can take away this freedom, but we may choose not to exercise it. And choice refers both to what events ultimately befall us and also to our response to them. We may feel powerless in relation to what is happening in our lives, but the power to choose how we wish to respond i.e. with anger or sadness, with regret or guilt, with joy or compassion, with forgiveness or love, is always with us. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. He's literally what he thinks, because the heart attracts to it what it harbours. If it harbours thoughts of failure, it attracts failure to it. If it harbours love for others, others are attracted to it. Now plants grow from their seeds, and the seeds for the actions of a man are the thoughts he or she has. How a person unfolds and what he grows into is not the product of chance, but is a growth under law. To be a good and noble person is the natural outcome of continued effort and right thinking. 
and alternatively a selfish and evil person is the result of the continued entertainment of base thoughts. So we are made or unmade by ourselves. We may live so as to destroy ourselves or we may live so as to reveal the divine in us. We may lower ourselves to the animals or raise ourselves to the godly. We may be our own worst enemies or our best friends. Good thoughts bear good fruit and bad thoughts bear bad fruit. And having the power to choose our thoughts, we are ultimately the moulders of our character, the makers and shapers of our environment and destiny. We are the reapers of our own harvest. We're not slaves to the tyranny of fate and circumstance, and nobody or no thing can force us to become criminals or saints. As James Allen says later on, men do not attract that which they want, but that which they are. Their whims, fancies and ambitions are thwarted at every step, but their inmost thoughts and desires are fed with their own food, be it foul or clean. Man is manacled only by himself. Thought and action are the jailers of fate. They imprison, being base, and they are also the angels of freedom. They liberate, being noble. And not what he wished and prays for does a man get, but what he justly earns. His wishes and prayers are only gratified and answered when they harmonize with his thoughts and actions. Now to turn to collective responsibility. As individuals, we're not islands, but are totally connected to everybody else. So not only is there individual responsibility, but also collective responsibility. And whether we like it or not, we are all involved in everything that happens in the whole world. It may be direct or indirect, but there is nothing anywhere that we're not responsible for. Everything in the universe is connected. Khalil Gibran says in the Prophet, Oftentimes have I heard you speak of one who commits a wrong, as though he were not one of you, but a stranger unto you, and an intruder upon your world. But I say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise beyond the highest, which is in each one of you, so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest which is in you also. And as a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the wrongdoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. And like a procession, you walk together towards your God-self. You are the way and the wayfarers, and when one of you falls down, he falls for those behind him, a caution against the stumbling stone. Aye, and he falls for those ahead of him, who though faster and surer of foot, 
yet remove not the stumbling stone. So in the light of that, do we accept that a single leaf turns not yellow without the hidden will of us all? And that every wrongdoer who does wrong does so with the hidden will of us all? Do we agree that when someone falls, he or she falls because we did not remove the stumbling stone? And even if we feel we're not responsible for the state of others, do we not acknowledge that we have a responsibility to others? Khalil Gibran continues, And this also, though the word lie heavy upon your hearts, the murdered is not unaccountable for his own murder, and the robbed is not blameless in being robbed. The righteous is not innocent of the deeds of the wicked, and the white-handed is not clean in the doings of the felon. Yea, the guilty is oftentimes the victim of the injured, and still more often the condemned is the burden-bearer for the guiltless and unblamed. You cannot separate the just from the unjust and the good from the wicked. For they stand together before the face of the sun, even as the black thread and the white are woven together. And when the black thread breaks, the weaver shall look into the whole cloth, and he shall examine the loom also. So again in the light of that, do we believe that the one robbed is totally blameless in being robbed? And if we do, then we do not believe in universal justice. Life is a team game, and all are responsible for the outcome of the game. And getting goals ourselves does not necessarily stop the team from losing. And as members of the team, we are responsible for its loss. And finally, Khalil Gibran says, If any of you would bring to judgment the unfaithful wife, let him also weigh the heart of our husband in scales and measure his soul with measurements. And let him who would lash the offender look unto the spirit of the offended. And if any of you would punish in the name of righteousness and lay the axe unto the evil tree, let him see to its roots. And verily he will find the roots of the good and the bad the fruitful and the fruitless, all entwined together in the silent heart of the earth. According to Khalil Gibran, none of us are freed of the responsibility for the existence of the murderer, the paedophile, the criminal, nor of the saint, the good person and the just person. Now, let's turn to lack of responsibility. The human being is naturally responsible. That is, he or she naturally has the ability to respond fully. Because that's what it means to be responsible, to be able to respond. 
The baby responds fully to its environment. Being the embodiment of love, it is capable of responding to all and sundry. So what happens to us? This is where the talk lightens up. One simple way of looking at this is that as we grow up, we allow limiting thoughts to enter our minds and hardened feelings to pervade our hearts. And the fundamental limiting thought which dominates us is my identity, who I think I am. Well, if I think I'm an individual, then I am responsible to me and nobody else. If I think I'm a family man or woman, then I am or feel responsible to my family, but not others. If I think I'm an Irishman or woman, then I am or feel responsible for Ireland and all things Irish. If I think I'm a human being, then I am and feel responsible for all of humanity. If I think I'm spirit, then I am and feel responsible for all. Now this identity, other than that of I am spirit, when taken seriously, hardens our hearts, which then makes the ability to respond fully impossible. The person then divides the world into three. And all of us do this. We divide the world into three. There's that which I like or love. There's that which I dislike or hate. And there's that which I'm indifferent to. That which I love, I respond to. That which I like or hate, I react to either benignly or malignly. And that which I am indifferent to, I do not respond to. So with regard to the vast majority of the people and the world, I fail to be responsible. In summary, we respond to a very small portion of the universe. A bigger portion we react to one way or the other, and the biggest portion by far we do not respond to or react to at all. Even when we think we love, we may not truly love. Our love often is more like sentimentality. As a result, we do not act for the true welfare of others. We do too much for our children, forgiving them when the application of justice will be in their better interest. We avoid applying sanctions or reduce them so that they are ineffective in curbing their bad behaviour. With others that we love, we allow unreasonable behaviour to flourish because we don't want to cause trouble or we just want a quiet life or we believe, who am I to judge another? If we truly loved, then no matter what the price, we would act responsibly, i.e. respond to the need of the other. And if I can give a story to illustrate this, my son trained as an accountant, so he worked in a large accountancy practice for a number of years. And one day, while he was still residing at home, he came home and I was at home, and he said, I had an appalling day today. There was a really obnoxious woman 
on the order team. And I said to him, are you sure that she was obnoxious and it just wasn't a clash of your personality and her personality? And he said with a remarkable clarity, no, she was definitely obnoxious. <laughs> right? she said, he said, everybody thinks she's obnoxious. Her reputation precedes her. So that was his little outburst. And then I said to him, well, I think you should tell her. <laughs> At that stage, he immediately regretted his little outburst. And I said, yes, you should tell her. I said, this lady has been allowed by parents, teachers and friends to develop a personality so that nobody likes her. Nobody wants her company. Now, what is her life going to be like? It'll be full of isolation, loneliness, bitterness and all of these things. And I said, are you just going to be silent and let this life unfold for this lady? I said, if you're a man of love, which he often claims to be, I said, you need to tell her. You need to tell her. She needs to know. If you were ill, would you prefer if the doctor didn't tell you? That's why we go to doctors, to find out. Well, if you're the friend of someone, or if you're a fellow human being, you tell people if they have illnesses of the heart, like obnoxiousness. <laughs> right? <laughs> But you do it in a way that you're not criticizing them or you're not setting yourself above them. You're telling them so that they may go free of it. Anyway, I never heard whether he did do anything or not. So I don't know whether this lady still wanders the earth afflicting herself on everybody, but anyway. Now, with our hearts either hardened or in sentimental mush, and with limiting and erroneous ideas filling our minds, we firmly believe in injustice. We become angered at the injustices of other people, and we feel ourselves to be badly treated. We then either rage ineffectually at the state of the world, or having accepted injustice in our lives, we accept injustice in the lives of others. We do not respond to this injustice or perceived injustice but allow it to flourish as demonstrated by all the poverty and inequality that we allow to exist in the world today. Believing in the existence of so-called injustice we throw responsibility on others. They are responsible for making me sad or angry or they have failed to make me happy. We blame ads for making us eat junk food, or want things we cannot afford. We want pills to stop us overeating. We want government to do everything for us, provide more and more services to us. We want them to pass more laws, drinking and driving laws, anti-littering laws, and so on and on, because we do not accept the responsibility in ourselves of developing the strength to be reasonable, sociable, and lovable beings. So we blame our state on society, on our parents, and on our teachers. And throwing responsibility on others, we become the slaves of others. 
because we cannot change another, we are then doomed to mechanically react to the behavior and treatment of others. For so long as we throw the responsibility on the other, we fail to see that the basic responsibility is ours. And failing to see that, no change takes place in us. We believe that temptation comes from outside of us. However, no cake is tempting. I know this would be a big surprise to most of us. But no cake is tempting. It cannot tempt a man who is asleep and it cannot tempt a man who is wise. The source of all desire is our inward state. The outward object provides the occasion for the desire, but it's not the cause. If the cause were in the object, then everybody would be equally tempted by the same object. And we would always be slaves to desires, incapable of overcoming them. Now, Christians blame the devil for their desires. The Hindus blame karma. The truth is, misery, greed, anger, attachment, etc. are solely our responsibility. And just as we've taken them on, we can cast them off. Believing that we are not responsible, we do not understand, and thus we become filled with fear. There's no certainty for us. Now, if we saw a farmer sowing wheat, and we asked him, what type of crop do you expect from that? He would deem us mad or stupid, saying to us that if you plant wheat, you inevitably get a wheat crop. However, not accepting responsibility, we think we can plant hateful thoughts and get love in return. Or that if we plant loving thoughts, we may not get love in return, but perhaps hatred or exploitation. The law is that a sincere man gathers sincere friends, and an insincere man is surrounded by insincere people. And the farmer is right if he thinks us mad and stupid. Those who do not see the law of responsibility talk of luck or fortune or chance. They do not see the cause of the effect and judge superficially and in limited time frames, seeking explanations at the surface level and based only on the recent past. When a person denies responsibility for their circumstances, they are still left with the desire that their circumstances be improved. But denying self-responsibility they do not or are unwilling to improve themselves, which is the only thing which will lead to an actual improvement of circumstances. Now, people believe that thought will not have an effect, that I can think whatever I want to. But thought enacted crystallizes into habit, and habit turns into circumstance. Thought persisted in cannot fail to produce its results in character and circumstance. We cannot directly choose our circumstances, but in choosing our thoughts, we indirectly shape our circumstances. 
And this is the law of attraction. And it works whether we know it or not. So let us look at reaction. Now, failing to respond, we either are indifferent or we react. So let's look at reaction. We identify with our body and its sensations, our mind and its thoughts, our heart and its feelings. And this identification produces tension in the body, mind and heart. These tensions mean that we react rather than act. Somebody insults us. They push our buttons and we react. It is as mechanical as turning on a light switch. Say we hit the person. This is not action, but reaction. The other person is the manipulator and we are the manipulated. We are not our own master. Anybody can insult us and make us angry, sad and annoyed. Also, anybody can praise us and raise us to the heights and make us feel great. In this state, we cannot control our minds and hearts. Others or the environment are doing all the controlling. We have developed an ego that takes everything personally. And it is this which makes us react. We think everybody else's reactions are over the top, but ours are reasonable. Do you recognize that? This is until afterwards, and then you're filled with shame and regret for whatever you said or did. Because of reaction and not response, we do not see who or what is in front of us, what is really happening. And in this state, every action we do has within it the very force which makes it repeated again and again and again. It is as if we're cutting channels in our hearts and then the water can only flow in the channels, i.e. we can only behave in a particular way. The more we act in these predictable ways, the more reinforced they become. And these reactions then have a lease of life, our life, that is for our entire life. So these reactions are self-perpetuating and then everything is done simply because of the force of habit. Even if the mind does not agree with the action, even if the heart is troubled by it, we are compelled to carry it out. Habit forces us to do things and we become their victim. We may regret it immediately afterwards, but that does not stop us doing it again and again. Basically, we live through our habits, or our habits live through us. Habits become our masters, and we become their servants. It's like being possessed. Our habits become our first nature, and our first and true nature becomes secondary. These habits are the reactions of our accumulated past, and the presence of reaction means the absence of responsibility. These reactions emotionally manifest as despondency, irritability, anxiety, or as complaining, condemning, and grumbling.
Now, you may not recognize any of these in yourselves, but you'll find them in the Oxford English Dictionary. The world of reaction is one of divisions, quarreling, wars, litigation, accusation, follies and hatreds. And when we are subject to these, then we are subject to injustice because we cannot do other than see injustice. So there's a very important question. Is there no injustice in this world? Well, the man of reaction sees injustice everywhere. And the person of responsibility sees the operation of justice in every aspect of life. The sense of injustice is the fruit of reaction and is real to the reactionary. We see injustice in the actions of others because we see only the immediate appearances. We regard every act to stand by itself independent of the law of cause and effect. We judge on the basis of the effect only, not knowing the cause. However, as you sow, so shall you reap is an invisible law operating all the time everywhere, but mainly unseen and not believed in. Now, anger is one of the most common forms of reaction. When we get angry, we think we're doing it. We rationalize it, saying that the situation demanded it. I had to be angry, otherwise the other person would have got away with some wrong, or trampled all over me. Now, this is a very important point. Anger never comes out of the present situation. We're always angry with the wrong person. We're always angry with the person right in front of us. But anger never comes out of the present situation. It comes out of the past. It is stored in your being from past events. If you didn't store anger in your being, you couldn't get angry now. You're just living off your little reserves of anger. And some poor devil in front of you is paying for it now. <laughs> so that little old lady who's doing 27 miles per hour in her Morris Minor, which was made in 1953, and she's on the outside lane. She pays for an awful lot. <laughs> but it's nothing to do with her. Thus... We are not angry now because our husband or wife said something to us now. They have simply supplied the occasion for anger, given us the possibility to be angry or an excuse to be angry. But the anger was there already, waiting to express itself. Had it not expressed itself with spouse, it would have been with someone else at another time. For nothing in nature is hidden forever. So all that anger that you've got stored inside of you has to express itself someday. All our reactions are our rough edges. If we responded, we would be smooth. Life would flow and we would go with the flow. And with these rough edges... We are like the ball in a pinball machine. 
bouncing off one side to another or in our lives from one situation to another. One way to view ourselves is that we are light and we can turn on or off that light as we wish. Now I want you to assume a room full of people who are being hindered in their work by lack of light in the room. And we enter the room with a bright lamp. So the question is, in those circumstances, would we turn it down? Would we turn the lamp down in reaction to the dim light of the room? Well, obviously we wouldn't. In fact, we would bring as much light to the room as we could. However, when we walk into a room full of hostile people, what do we do? Ordinarily, we meet their hostility with our hostility. So in the face of the darkness of others, we turn off our own light. And this is how stupid the world of reaction is. Now that's the happy part of the talk over, so... (laughs) Anyway, we're now going to look, it may be terrible to leave it at that, so we now have to look, how can we become responsible? Well, we can transform the world if we transform ourselves. To become responsible, we must accept responsibility for ourselves and our lives. The first thing we do is we stop blaming others. We stop blaming the past, God, the devil, or whatever. Initially, this might be quite depressing as we consider our present state and at the same time accepting total responsibility for it. But this passes soon and is replaced by a sense of great freedom and strength. Now we can determine our own lives. How others behave, how the world unfolds, leaves us untouched because we are willing to be masters of ourselves. And this awareness of choice restores our free will to us. Hermes Trismegistus, who was an Egyptian philosopher, he said that God so loved man that he gave him power to create. So what have we created in our lives? Well, we did not create the love in our lives, but we have created the hatred. We did not create the knowledge in our lives, but we have created the ignorance. And we did not create the happiness in our lives, but we have created the misery. And in the book, As a Man Thinketh, James Allen continues with, A man's mind may be likened to a garden, which may be intelligently cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether cultivated or neglected, it must and will bring forth. If no useful seeds are put into it, then an abundance of useless weed seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce their kind. And just as a gardener cultivates his plot, keeping it free from weeds and growing the flowers and fruits which he requires, so may a man tend the garden of his mind. 
weeding out all the wrong, useless and impure thoughts and cultivating towards perfection the flowers and fruits of right, useful and pure thoughts. So again, in the light of that, are we the master gardeners of our minds? Or have they been allowed to run wild? Have we weeded out that which is counterproductive to our happiness, peace, and freedom and love? If somebody could look into our minds, would they say, what a garden? <laughs> so cultivated, so ordered, so beautiful. Yes. So, practically speaking, how are we to become responsible? Well, with the mind, the first thing is self-inquiry. There is the need for real self-inquiry. A thorough examination of the contents and working of the mind and the subsequent removal or disempowerment of that which does not stand to reason. To be free of reaction and thus be responsible, the mind needs true knowledge. Now, to help ourselves become responsible, we should ask real questions of the mind. Like, who is my neighbour? What is my duty to my fellow man? Or do I have the right to choose to love one and not another? In order to have true knowledge, there is the need to practice discrimination. So false knowledge needs to be rooted out because it is this false knowledge which causes reaction. Opinions and thoughts should be questioned. That which is believed in should be tested. The fixed ideas that I am right or I know need to be dropped so that there is total openness. It would be better for us to continually ask, am I right? Or is this true? And whatever we believe in, we act upon. If we do not believe in something, we will not act upon it. So our beliefs need to be examined. And if they do not stand up to reason or in practice, they should be dropped. And if we're prone to harshly judge and condemn others, we should rather look within and see to what degree we fall short. As Confucius said, any fool can see faults in others and the goodness in himself. <laughs> but it takes wisdom to see the goodness in others and the faults in oneself. Universal principles need to be understood and abided by. Since time immemorial, the wise have thought by precept and by example, that evil is overcome only by good. Yet how often do we try to overcome evil with evil, i.e. we meet anger with anger? So this principle that evil is overcome only by good needs to be learnt. Also, as you sow, so shall you reap, and all the other universal principles which lead to a responsible life. Now, if we cannot control our thoughts, we cannot control our affairs. 
and without control we can't be responsible. We may not be able to control the thoughts that present themselves, but we can refrain from indulging them. The mind needs to be kept alert and not participate in daydreaming. Then we can see what is going on, and seeing what is going on, we can see habitual reactions and let them go. Once the mind is alert, then we recover free will. Becoming aware means that we can then be responsible for our own lives. The second factor with regard to the mind and becoming responsible is resolution. To move from reaction to response, resolution is essential. The power of habit is so strong that without resolution, no substantial work can be accomplished. So uncovering the reactionary aspects of our lives and dissatisfied with them, we resolve to take matters in hand. Resolution arises out of the appreciation of a need and the willingness to commit oneself to it being dealt with fully and properly. Half-hearted and premature resolution is no resolution at all. Hasty or shallow resolutions simply do not work. And if you just consider how many resolutions we make every day and how many of them we break. So we should be slow to make resolutions and they should be the result of deep examination and full understanding. And on making a resolution, all the force of habit will rise to test the resolution. So the resolution must be firm. Even if there is a momentary failure, the idea is that a true resolution, once made, is never abandoned. That is, it is irrevocable. With regard to the heart, how may that assist us to become responsible? Well, we should practice letting go. We should let go of all desires and claims and attachments and do not give them any admittance into our hearts. When they present themselves, let them pass without reacting to them or acting on them. The second factor with regard to the heart and responsibility is self-restraint. Here we check and control the negative emotions or invalid desires. So develop self-restraint. Resist temptation. Guard yourself against unuseful tendencies. And the intelligent way to check unhelpful desires is to refer to an ideal. Whatever our chosen ideal is. So, for example, somebody, a Christian, might say, how would Jesus respond to this or that? And then adopt that as their standard. Now, all we are doing here is not strengthening our reactions. However, restraint alone will not dissolve them. To dissolve them, we must purify our hearts. So, the next factor in becoming responsible with regard to the heart is empathy. Now, without empathy, we must be prejudiced, and prejudice kills kindness, sympathy, love, and true judgment. The fruit of prejudice is hatred towards others. 
Now, by practicing empathy, we understand the ignorance of others. We enter fully into their hearts and lives. And entering therein, compassion arises for their ignorance. And with compassion, useful action follows. Not burdened by the badness in others, we then uplift our neighbour, drawing out the goodness in him. So we should strive to mentally put ourselves in the place of others. Then instead of judging them harshly and reacting to them, entering into their experience, we will understand them. And understanding them, we can respond in love to their need. And this is the fulfilment of the great principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The fourth factor with regards to the heart and becoming responsible is to do with choosing our emotions. And this is man's great freedom, that he can choose whatever emotion he wishes in any situation. But due to ignorance, ordinarily we react. Now these reactions produce all the negative emotions such as hatred, greed, anger, vanity, pride, envy, etc. We could choose instead to respond with patience, humility, love, compassion, self-sacrifice, fearlessness, etc. To react is only to compound the problem. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he really is giving us the solution. When we are wronged, do not get even. Rather, make the other person even, i.e. equal to us. Love them, forgive them, and raise them to ourselves. Getting even simply reduces both parties. Making the other person even raises both parties. By raising yourself to your highest level, through your loving response, you raise them also. And to help with this, we should remember that there is no beneficiary to negative emotions. This is most important. Nobody benefits from negative emotions. Both the giver and the receiver of negative emotions suffer. And Confucius said, the fruit of negative feelings is endless misery and suffering. And we should reflect deeply on this so that no doubt remains in our minds as to its veracity. And this will greatly help us to overcome the destructive habits of negative emotions. As a simple practice, before we react, ask the question, what is the highest, best, or most loving response that I can give to this person or situation? And whatever the mind answers, then just give it. In this way, we respond from the divine in us rather than react from the animal in us. The fifth factor with regard to the heart and becoming responsible is acceptance. Every time we react, life has won and we have lost. So do not let life beat you. In the imitation of Christ it says, the events of life do not destroy the man. They own 
only show what he's made of. So the turmoil of the world we may not be able to avoid, but the turmoil in our mind is of our own choosing. So do not be beaten by the waves of life. Become a surfer of waves. Become responsible. Now the first thing to accept is our life. All of it. Assume the responsibility that has been assigned to us. Stop resisting our lives. Accept it as perfect. Everything that happens in it. Now, this is very dogmatic, but I'm going to say it. Everybody's life is perfect. There is no such thing as an imperfect life. It is perfect for you. It might be horrendous for somebody else if they had your life, but for you it is perfect. If your life was different than it is now, it wouldn't be perfect for you. So stop seeking change. If we can bring about this conviction, we will respond fully to our lives. We will then make use both of the bad and the good that befalls us. Normally we allow the bad to harm or limit us, but with this attitude, it will simply help us to grow. In truth, nothing good or bad happens to us. It is all for our education an opportunity for us to grow to know the truth about ourselves. Life is a school. And the question is, are we reacting or are we learning? All that irritates us in another is actually telling you something about yourself. Something that needs working on. So when you say, that person drives me insane... That is telling you something about yourself, not about the other person. It's telling you that you need to work on something. So meet everybody as if they were our teacher and let them teach us. It may be that they will teach us patience or compassion or forgiveness. The sixth factor of the heart and responsibility is capacity. So what is the capacity of the human being? What capacity do we have? Well, Jesus said, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what capacity is that? Therefore, do not fear your highest possibilities. Do not be afraid to let your light shine. There's nothing wrong in being number one. If we hide our light under a bushel, we simply make the world a darker place. So accept responsibility for the full and glorious manifestation of our talents, etc. When I was younger, I used to really envy people who had glorious singing voices. So I used to really envy people like Pavarotti and Placido Domingo the way they could entertain millions with their voices and even entertain themselves. So anyway, I, I was reading a magazine once and they were interviewing Pavarotti and the lady interviewer said, how often do you practice every day? And he said, seven hours, which killed 
any desire I had to have a glorious voice or be an opera singer. And she was stunned by this. And she said, well, what do you do for the seven hours? Well, he said, three of those seven hours is going up and down the scales. And I thought, oh my God, (laughs) that is just appalling. And she said to him, how do you do it? And he said, I consider my voice a gift from God. And it is my responsibility to keep it at its best for the benefit of the world. Now, if you have that attitude, you can go up and down the scales for three hours. I would just like to be an opera singer without all of that. (laughs) So one must accept responsibility for our talents. The Shankaracharya, the man whom the school put all its questions to, he said, it is not only for testing our qualities that one needs to take responsibility, but also to find out one's shortcomings. With capacity comes responsibility. If we are a doctor, we cannot not stop to help the ill. Whatever roles we play are accompanied by responsibility. There is no such thing as a role without responsibility. So husband is responsible for wife. I know it's a terrible burden, but this is the way it is. Husband is responsible for wife, and wife is responsible for husband. So it's an interesting question, if you happen to be married. Do you see yourself as responsible for the welfare and happiness of your spouse? Or do you sometimes think, let them rot in it? (laughs) I've done my bit. Employers are responsible for their employees. Nowadays, there's so much occupation of roles with very few people fulfilling them. And if we will not accept the responsibility, then step aside and let someone else do the job. Now, the last factor with regard to becoming responsible in the heart is to do with contentment. So, practice contentment. Be content with our spouse, our children, our friends. And be content now, accepting whatever has happened. Do not aim to be content in the future, but be content now. And to assist true contentment, It's permissible to be not content with three things. So there are only three things in life you're allowed to be not content with. So are you ready? (laughs) You are not to be content with your understanding. You are not to be content with your character. And you're not to be content with your spiritual unfoldment. All of them can do with a modicum of improvement. (laughs) So, with regard to these three, we should constantly seek to refine and enlarge. Now, to finish. The responsible man, what is he like? Well, the truly responsible man cannot be affected by malice, slander or accusation. He does not need to defend himself. His integrity does it for him. He cannot be tempted to reaction. He forms an ideal for his life and makes it the centre of his existence. 
This grants him the power of self-control over reactions. He not only believes in peace, he lives in peace. And so he does not engage in strife or argument or retaliation. Having abandoned the ego, he does not suffer because only the ego suffers. He is true to himself, acting in accordance with his own nature and belief. He does not allow the ignorant to determine his behavior in the form of reaction to that which is outside of him, but responds from within the depth of his own being. He is not in a position to control the people around him, but he is in a position to control the level of consciousness with which he meets these people and responds to them. He goes the second mile, and going the second mile, he finds true happiness, true friendship, and real satisfaction. He does not ask for peace and all sorts of blessings. Instead, he sows them, because he knows that as he sows, so shall he reap. And knowing that God does not alter for man, he alters for God. And with his calmness, he can adapt himself to others. And this calmness is his power. And he becomes a man of great influence over others. So to finish, our responsibilities are not our burdens. This is ignorance. They are our opportunities to fulfill our destinies. Responsibility allows life to be lived fully, well and happily and for us to die as well as we have lived. On our deathbed, we will not be old except in years. The soul is on a journey towards perfection and our responsibility is to realize this in our lives. This is man's ultimate responsibility to discover the truth about himself and then to live true to himself. This is his fulfillment and this is not an unattainable goal but an unclaimed possibility by us. If we want to help the world then we must have the ability to respond and this comes with knowing who we are. There was a great sage in India called Ramakrishna who inspired many, many, many people. And one of his disciples, who was a good man, came to Ramakrishna and he said, I want to help the world. So Ramakrishna said, what do you intend doing? He says, well, I intend feeding the poor. And Ramakrishna said to him, how many do you think you might feed in a lifetime? And the man said, 60,000 which I think is pretty good, but anyway, he said 60,000. And Ramakrishna said to him, and what about the other millions who are starving? And what about after you die? And so he said to the man, if you really want to help the world, then become a God-man, i.e. discover the truth about yourself. Then you can help the world. The heart of a realized man a man who knows who he is, is responsible. And his heart is like water. The events of life leave no mark on it. Afterwards he goes free and unscathed.
the truly responsible man takes no stands. Such responses are limited and originate from a particular person or a particular point of view. He does not side with one against another. This would only limit the universality and power of his response. The wise man's response is universal, helping all, satisfying all, without preference. He treats all as members of the one family. Now, as was said at the beginning of the talk, we are responsible for ourselves and we are responsible for the whole universe. So the question I'm going to leave you with is, are you going to accept your responsibility? So thank you. Just something that you said, I thought needed explaining. You said, stop entertaining base thoughts, yes. base thoughts as entertainment, but we attract what we are. Is there a connection? It seems to me, just the way I perceive it, it's like a, almost like a slight contradiction. I know it's not meant that way, but how to explain the two things? The two things, just if you can rephrase that again to me, or say it again to me. To stop entertaining the base thoughts yes but then we attract what we are and if that's what we are the best way to hear that they are the words I used but to hear what we are at that point in time so at a point in time a base person would have base thoughts which would then make him into a base person which would attract more base thoughts just like the drug addict if he takes the drugs would become more and more addicted so it's in that sense rather than who we are in our essential nature. The law of attraction works. Like you'll find this that, as was said in the talk, that sincere people tend to have sincere friends and insincere people tend to have insincere friends. If you look at a mafia film, they're always having a go at each other and everybody cheats each other in the end because they are dishonest people. So it's that sort of sense. And it's very important that, because sometimes you can criticize what's around you, not realizing that you're actually attracting it to yourself. Maybe this would be the best example. There are certain personality types who get bullied. They attract the bully. The bully can see them a mile away and they draw the bully to them. Whereas another person can be completely unscathed even though the bully is in the same classroom. So it's that sort of sense. Instead of complaining about the environment, one should look to what's the attracting power here. And if you change the attracting power, then you may find that your environment changes. And the one thing you are in control of is what is the attracting power here, and you're not in control of effectively what's out there other than by changing what's in here so it's in that sense yes far away I have a question I suppose 
I was wondering, you know, if my dad was here tonight and he's passed away, yes, he would have said, why did God give dominion to the fellow with the two legs over the rest of the universe? Right. Four, two legs better than four legs. Yes. So did God make a mistake when he did this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you look at what we've done to the earth, you would think that he made a mistake. Now, when I give you this answer, this is what springs to my mind rather than I can claim any authority behind it. It strikes me that if we accept God and we accept that he created man and accept these statements, that on that basis he gave man the dominion over the earth because man is made in the image of God. For example, if you were married and you had a child and it was, it was age two, you wouldn't say to her, I want you to run a dinner party for me this weekend. It doesn't have the capacity at the age of two to run a dinner party. If you had children, one was age two and one was age ten and one was age sixteen and one was age twenty, and you wanted help with this dinner party, you would look to the one that was most responsible in the sense of able to respond. So the greatest responsibility is to give them to the one who has the greatest capacity. And if man is the greatest creature in this creation, for that reason he's given the greatest capacity. Is it because he had the power to think while animals don't have that power? Or obviously it's something more. I don't agree that it's just the power to think myself. Well, again, what I have read is that we can look at three levels. We can look at the level of the animals, we can look at the level of man, and we can look at the level of so-called superior beings in the form of angels or demigods and those sort of entities. What is said is that man is the only one who can transcend his own nature. So the dog simply fulfills his nature. If he sees a cat, he doesn't think, well, I don't have to chase cats. <laughs> you know, I can get over this, you know. <laughs> so he goes running down the road and the little cat goes running away. It is also said, according to scripture, that the angel has no choice. Whatever angels are designed to do, that's what they do. Man has free will. So we can actually reject his humanity and become an appalling entity, or he can transcend it because he has this capacity for self-awareness. Again, just to take a very simple example would be a dog knows that he's hungry. But that hunger will drive him to eat. Man knows that he's hungry, and he knows that he knows he's hungry. He has this self-awareness. He has the capacity to observe himself. And observing himself, he can then, if you want to call it, transcend it. So within your own experience, there may have been times that somebody is talking to you, and you become aware of anger arising in you. And you say, look, it would not be useful now to respond to this anger. So you transcend the anger and you don't allow it to operate. That is said to be man's great gift, this ability for self-observation which allows him to transcend. And on that basis he would be classified as the greatest of all the creatures and therefore would get the big job, okay. which is to look after the whole creation. Again, just to say the Shankaracharya, the man that the school put all his questions to, he said that the state of the animal kingdom 
is dependent on the state of man. And just to take it in a very small context, you know, we think we have the right to be miserable. You know, I have the right to be miserable, and if I am miserable, I am miserable. And I'm going to go out and be miserable. What Swami Vivekananda said was that if you are miserable, you should stay in your room that day. <laughs> that you have no right to inflict it on the world. That is a valid point. You don't have a right to inflict it on the world. And in a family, we would acknowledge this. Sometimes when a child is you know, very badly behaved, and you say, look, you're ruining this for the family. Either you get into a good humour or get out of the room. Right? You have no right to inflict your misery or your irritation over the whole family. But that applies to the world. You, you don't have a right to walk down the world as a misery goods. Why not walk down blissfully happy? Why not enlighten the lives of others? Now we don't accept that responsibility to a large degree. We think that we have the right to be angry. There's no scriptural authority, there's no authority for that statement that you have the right to be angry. You have a duty to be happy, but you have no right to be angry. So okay. that's the sense of it. Okay, thank you. Is that um, right? the just another, oh, sorry, just another, another point. Yes? I, suppose. I think we have realized that we've, we've separated ourselves from, I suppose, the earth. You yes. know, if we realize that we shall return to dust when we yes. die, and uh, that we wouldn't have caused so much, you know, I suppose, destroying the world around us. And now we're coming to this realization and we're quickly trying to obviously address the situation. Yes. So if there was that realization that we are totally in one with the world, because what we think, you know, is how we change the world Absolutely. through our minds. There definitely is a growth in consciousness or awareness with regard to our responsibility to this earth. But it really is our lowest responsibility. Now, it's a fundamental responsibility because we can't exist as man without this earth. In a way, it reflects our identification with the body. So there's much more movement. Hundreds or thousands of people walking down streets saying, you know, we need to stop pollution. But why don't hundreds or thousands walk down the streets and say, we need to love? But it has been done many times in song, hasn't it? <laughs> well, absolutely. But the point about it is the people are very concerned now about you know, temperature and pollution mm -hmm. and these sort of things. And they're all physical things. Yeah. Emotional distress is far more important. Far, far more important. My understanding is that by, I think it's 2010, depression will be the single greatest disease that is suffered by man in the world. So, we certainly have to look after Mother Earth. But we have to look after minds and hearts. I'm not convinced that modern education, first of all, develops minds. It certainly fills minds. But whether it truly develops minds. And people seem to be an awful lot weaker emotionally. So there's much more anger nowadays. So you have road rage and air rage and millions of other rages. And people lack endurance, the ability to stay with things. So people are swapping jobs and partners and all sorts of things over and over and over again. So I think if you're looking at man, you have to look at the three things that need looking after. His body and therefore ultimately the earth. You have to really look after his mind. Again, as an example in the mind. 
the average sitcom in America, the scene lasts 10 seconds before it switches. And the reason for that is because the average audience cannot concentrate for more than 10 seconds. So you create a movement to keep the audience awake. So after 10 seconds they tend to drift off. Now that is an appallingly low capacity to concentrate. I think around the 1850s when people like Ralph Waldo Emerson toured around America and spoke, or politicians spoke, they would sometimes speak for two to three hours. And audiences would stand, there wouldn't be seats. Now, I'm not going to do that to you, so don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> but we can't do that anymore. Our minds have become so shrunk. We've got all sorts of machines now that do all the memory bit, but we've no memory. We can't remember where we put the machine. <laughs> you know? And our hearts, the sense of community and caring for the community. You don't have to accept this as absolutely true, but it, I think it's an interesting pointer. Mr. McLaren said, you know, there was a time when there was a sense of communal responsibility. So, and there were, a lot of people would have been farmers, but if your neighbor's barn burnt down, there was no insurance in those days. So everybody rebuilt the barn. Nowadays, we think, well, he should have had it insured. <laughs> and we won't have so everybody now has to do everything by themselves. We have all sorts of insurance policies because we're no longer confident that anybody will help us. We have pension schemes and health insurance and we put aside money in case our children will abandon us and there won't be an old people's home for us to go into. But the hearts have shrunk dramatically despite the fact the communication has really revealed to us the state of the world and the state of people in the world. But in a way, we're caring for smaller numbers of people. Me and mine. So that people we for, we suffer remarkable loneliness mm -hmm. in cities. Imagine that. I mean, cities have never been so big. So you take Dublin and they say there's 1.25 million people in Dublin. And there's so much loneliness. People surrounded by people, but everybody's an island. I don't know, if you've been to London, London may be an exaggerated example because it's full of English people. <laughs> but, but if you go into a crowded tube, everybody's on their own. There's just no communication, not even eye communication. Everybody's on their own. And you watch people in airports and trains and buses and walking on the street and everybody's in their own little world you know, with a sandwich in their mouth walking down the street coffee in one hand and a sandwich in the other and in their own world so ok thank you for okay. that thank you there's a lady in front of you yeah I just have another question about what you were saying about the law of attraction in terms of your beliefs and your thoughts bringing situations into your life Yes. I mean, surely that's a very simplified and blanket type rule. I mean, it's like saying that only bad people get sick or, you know, the children are responsible for getting sick or whatever. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> As you say, it's not simplified, but it is very simple. The law of attraction works. Or you want to take, as you sow, so shall you reap. 
we find it incomprehensible when we look at what befalls certain people but as it said in the talk and as various sages have said is we look in very short time frames we're not fully informed so we're not in a position to judge I've used this example before and it's an example from a film did you see The Godfather Part 3? see that film? alright so anyway at the end of the film Al Pacino I think he's either walking out from an opera house or a church I think it's an opera house and his daughter is beside him and somebody attempts to kill Al Pacino but shoots the daughter dead and there's a horrendous cry from Al Pacino as he stands or kneels over his daughter now if that was the only bit of the three films that you saw you would say gee isn't that so sad and so unfair he obviously loved his daughter and yet she got taken out now if you see part one, two and three of The Godfather you think he deserved it <laughs> right? he got his just desert because you see the entire story from beginning to end until we see the entire story from beginning to end we're not able to judge at any point in time and that's our problem we see for example within tiny time frames for example it's just only at a very cursory level now but a man may drink like a fish when he's in his 20s and it has not affected me my liver is still excellent but if you wait till he's 40 you'll get the fruit of the drinking when he was age 20 or in his 20s you need to have a very large time frame if you plant well let's say wheat you'll get a wheat crop three months later if you plant an oak tree you won't get a full oak tree for maybe a hundred years so you can't look in very short time frames to see cause and effect some things take a very long time to mature but all the great scriptures and all the sages say as you sow so shall you reap this is a lawful creation there's nothing random there's nothing chance and there's nothing unjust now they've either all got it wrong and that is a possibility we're the wise ones <laughs> we got it right it is random and chaotic and it's all unfair but my bet is on them that they got it right things befall you know shame will haul and I can't find anything to justify these appalling things that happen to me but I think well I simply don't understand rather than scream injustice now even if you can accept it it brings tremendous release from the burden of so called adversity once you accept it or even though I can't see this this is the operation of justice you stop complaining and screaming and you get on with it like if you go to an airport and you, you arrive late and they say to you the plane is closed and you can still see it there it is <laughs> but it's closed if you think that that is unjust it's horrendous as you see it going down the <laughs> the runway and taking off it's just so unfair and it multiplies the pain of not being on the plane but if you accept that they have to close the doors at a certain time prior to takeoff might you say right okay what do I need to do I need to book another plane so you will minimize the pain that you suffer in the acceptance of universal justice so even if you just train yourself to do that you will find that it, it allows life to move very smoothly 
Now, it's best only to look into your own life rather than to look at somebody else's life because we really don't know other people in their entirety. All right? But we can look at ourselves. And when apparent injustice happens to you, another excellent approach to adopt is, what is this teaching me? So you turn the so-called bad into good or the useless into useful. And again, I've used this example before, but the first time that somebody that I loved truly died on me, after going through all the horrors of grieving, ultimately it produced a remarkable understanding here. And since then, other loved ones have died, and there has been no grieving. There's been freedom from grieving. So you can turn what is apparently useless or inexplicable or bad into something excellent. And that's the other very useful attitude. But anyway, I wasn't trying to simplify it, but I was saying it as simply as it is. As you sow, so shall you reap. So when you look to what you're reaping, understand that there is a sowing which produced that reaping. And if you sow wheat, you get a wheat crop. You don't get a banana crop. That's the way it works. So if you get adversity or ill health or something, something has been sown to produce it. The good produces the good and the bad produces the bad. It's a very simple creation actually. Another objector. <laughs> I'm afraid I have more than one thing to say. Yes. So uh, I, I listen because I was troubled by the last thing you said. All right. I had a brother who died recently, a virulent cancer which yes. uh, consumed him. But he led an admirable life. He was yes. revered in his community and by his family. And I can't think of what he would have sowed to reap that fate. So that's one thing. Yes. Now, just getting back to the general theme of the, of the conference, or the, the lecture, it's intimidating, and always has been intimidating, to consider one as having responsibility for the entire human, even beyond the human race, the animal world. Every, you're responsible for everything. And it has always been an intimidating thing in Christianity, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, but ultimately that is taken to mean love the whole world and... And you ask yourself, I mean, it's so huge a demand on you that you begin to think, what do I do? Do I sell my house and give it to the Vincent de Paul? Or what on earth do I do? And if I don't do all of it, where do I stop? And am I only ma making a, a kind of half-hearted or symbolic gesture to it? Yeah, that's the point. Finally, the question of this kind of controlled person who learns to control and, you know, to manage life. and I mean, it all sounds right, but words that occur to me are worthy and dull, whereas instinct and passion. All right. So, there's, that's the full... Um, <laughs> okay. Now, I take the last one first. <laughs> Get a bit of passion back into this talk. All right. There is that passion which absolutely depletes you, which possesses your soul, so you become possessed by some idea which you give yourself to, but it can destroy you. 
I'm just going to call that passion under ignorance. Under wisdom, it would be enthusiasm. Remarkable enthusiasm. So that you're not depleted, you're actually energized by what you love. Not depleted by what you love. Not destroyed by what you love, but in fact made great by what you love. So there would be no lack of enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm would be passion at its very, very best. So you wouldn't get this dull person that you wouldn't want to invite to your party because you don't you ruin the whole thing. <laughs> it's not going to be like that at all. So that's the first thing. I think control is the wrong word as well. Negative emotions are dissolved rather than controls. We don't have a controlled freak. We have a person who's free from envy. I don't know whether you've ever gone to a school reunion. Have you ever gone to a school reunion? Yeah, very good. I won't ask you why only once. But anyway, I have never gone to a school reunion. But I have friends who've gone to my school reunion. And I asked them about it. And they said the amount of competition that there was there, the amount of asking, you know, what are you doing and where do you live and finding out what size of car and whether it was a GTI with quadraphonic stereo or just one of the plane models, all of that sort of stuff. That's it under ignorance. Under love, you enjoy the success of others. You delight in the success of all. There is no controlling. It is a dissolution of negative emotions and the enjoyment of all without limit. In fact, you become as a child. You know when a child is giggling? It's far more enthusiastic giggling than you ordinarily giggle. It's like that. So that's the first point. Now, then, what was the other bit? After all, I'm not going to comment on your brother because that would be a ridiculous thing for me to comment since I didn't even know your brother. Yes, absolutely. But the second point was... No, I, I've done the dullness. Oh, distributing all your goods. All right. That sounds very expansive of you, the way you do it. All right. That's all I have. Even science will tell you that you're not separate. So let's just take it at the level of thought or feeling. We won't differentiate between thought and feeling. Every thought or feeling you have is a wave. And it emanates from you. This is why you can pick up that people are sad or unhappy. Because they're literally emanating these waves of sadness or unhappiness or whatever. Now, there is nothing which can stop the wave. It's like if you throw a pebble into a pond... Even if you can't see the ripples, they go all the way to the edge. They would be larger, right around where the, the pebble actually hit the water, but they will go all the way to the edge. Every thought and feeling you have pervades the entire universe. That's what actually happens. So if you were a very depressed man, it might affect your wife and children to a large degree. The next door neighbor might be partially affected. The guy in South America might just wonder what's going on. Why, why is he not feeling so good this morning? <laughs> one needs to understand that one does have an effect all the way. Now, if your use of heart is limited, 
it will have a limited effect. But let's say you're a gr uh, well, let's say you are a great human being. You are a Christ or a Buddha or a Krishna. Then you might uplift a civilization for 2,000 years or 5,000 years. You do have influence all over the world and you can have great influence. Now you might say, well, what can I do? Well, what you should do, you should always start from where you are. So and I happen to know that you're a married man and you have a number of children. So you should learn to love them fully and unconditionally. So you start with the immediate circle. And when you've got that into nice shape, the wife is delighted with her, your unconditional love and the children are glowing from their father's love, then you can begin to extend it out to those who are close to you. And it's not a matter of saying, well, how can I help Ubongo in Ethiopia or something like that. It's not like that. What you do is life will present to you certain actions. You've undertaken certain responsibilities and certain duties. Your job is to care for the one in front of you. And if you can do that, if you can truly embrace or love or care for the one in front of you, you have done your job. And Mother Teresa, who could have been said to have led a very large life, there's a marvellous quote by her. and She says, I cannot care for thousands. I can only care for the one in front of me. And when you care for one in front of you, you will care for thousands. And you will have a remarkable influence. It may never be written down. They may never do a film about you or anything like that at all. But you will have your influence. Well, as I said, I think it's important to accept that responsibility. You may not see the ripples after a while. But the ripples do go out. This is how countries go into a recession. How come everybody suddenly starts to think in a fearful way at the same time? Once enough people start to think like that, then it gets like that. And if enough people start to think greedily, then everybody starts getting greedy. And once everybody starts to think hopefully, or enough people think hopefully, we get another boom again. We all do influence. That's the point. And well, as the material said, and all the great teachings said, we are responsible. If I said to you, in terms of capacity, and I've used this example before, how many are you capable of loving? What would you say to me? You can speak into the microphone now, because I want this recorded. I shouldn't want your answer on tape. You shouldn't ask me that in front of my wife. <laughs> Well, you better say one at least. <laughs> well, I don't know, is the answer. Let me try this with you. And let's say you're married and you love your wife. And then your first child came along. Did you reduce any love for your wife in order to give it to the child? Of course not. No. no. It expanded. Yes. It? Mm. And I, I can't How many children do you have? Six. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Proves the point. When the sixth one arrived the love naturally expanded to the six. If 10 had arrived, or 25 had arrived, it would have expanded. Well, I have 12 grandchildren as well. Excellent. Sorry, are they 13. All, are, they all in it? are they all in love as well? Yes. Very good. So you obviously have the capacity. You've got the capacity now to love wife, six, and 12. And maybe even some of the son-in-laws and things like that. Brothers and sisters. <laughs> so we're up to around 25. So that's very good. And you're still not out of love. Well, you can go further. You have a responsibility to go further. That's the point. 
So you need to stop just loving those that bear your name or have some of your so-called blood and all that sort of stuff. You have to change your concept of family. And it would be excellent if one day you had the concept of the human family. Because it's only a change of name, that's all that's required. You might say, it's very hard for me to love people who are not very nice. One of your children may not be very nice, it doesn't stop you loving them at all. Yes, but I'm a kind of a loving person, I could love lots of people. Okay, the, well then try the loving more then. Yeah, but the question springs, how much do I have to give them all? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're with a grandson or a granddaughter, how much love do you give? I'm talking about money. No, no. I'm Resources. Talking about, I'm talking about love. Oh, yeah. Well, how much? complete. Everything. Yeah, you give all. Everything, yeah. Very good. So, when you're with one grandchild, even though there are 10 or 12 somewhere else around the earth, you give them all your love. Excellent. That's what you should do. You should give it to everybody you meet. Every shop assistant. Everybody you talk to. All your love. Now, that would be excellent. You are remarkably wealthy in terms of love, because you have the capacity to love the entire universe. Your wealth might be of a slightly lower standard. <laughs> All right. What you should do, and there's a very simple measure, you should give away your surplus. That's all. What you do not need. Now, you don't reduce yourself to one loincloth and a you know, half a sandal type oh. of thing. Alright? I'll move house. Maybe, whatever. But you give away your surplus. Again, this is another law, and we find this one very hard to accept. Let's say you eat more than you need. Is it of benefit to you? If you put more food than you need into your stomach, it's not of benefit to you. It's actually a burden to you. Now you have to walk out of the restaurant with it inside of you. <laughs> okay? So. We can accept it with regard to food, or drink, or lots of things. To have more money than you need is a burden to you. You may not appreciate the burden, and you may say, I'm willing to carry that burden, because I'm a big boy. But it is a burden to you. It is a burden to you. So you should never have more than you need. In the Vedic tradition, which is the tradition of India they also have ten commandments and one of the commandments is thou shalt not steal it may be phrased slightly differently but the word steal is in there so it's equivalent to our Christian commandment of thou shalt not steal but they have a very interesting explanation for what it means to steal is to have more than you need how about that and see that is to steal you wouldn't do that to the members of your family. You wouldn't stuff your own body full of food and let one of the members of your family go hungry. You, you have a duty to keep your body healthy, but you wouldn't go to excess in order to deprive one of your grandchildren or children. So if you could widen your concept of family to include not only humans but all creatures and the earth itself, then you would simply take what you need, which is excellent, it's not deprivation, it is that which satisfies. And then, if you happen to have talent to have more and more and more than what you need to satisfy yourself, you give away your surplus. It's what you did, if I may say so, when you got married. 
and you had these six children, and let's say you were the only earner of income in that family unit, if I just assume that, the reality is you had the capacity to create sufficient money to care for yourself, wife, and six children. So one had created sufficient money for eight. Is that okay? And what you did was, you kept your money for your fags and whatever else you kept it for. Oh, you had to give those up. All right. You gave up those. <laughs> okay, excellent. But you would have shared your surplus with the eight. And that is absolutely excellent. And if there's more surplus, then extend beyond the eight. That's the way it works. And this is a, an invalid reaction to this sort of talk. To think, well, should I give my house away then? Because you're never going to give your house away. <laughs> so it's just a way of not looking at the situation and saying, what can I do practically? And what you can do practically is, first of all, you can hold everybody in your heart and wish for the welfare of all, for the best for all. And in terms of physical goods like money, etc., etc., that which is surplus to your true and genuine needs, you give for the benefit of others. That's excellent. And the reality is this, if people did this, there would be no problems. Just say if man could take on this concept. I don't have this figure on me, but it's something I read once. I think it is, if the top 300 people in the world, in terms of wealth, gave away 1% of wealth, it would provide sufficient money to provide primary and secondary education for all of the world. Now, if you can imagine these top 300 and what wealth they do have, 1% is not going to have them going hungry. Does that make sense? 1% from those. So the reality is, there is sufficient. And we can help the entire world. And you just need to do your bit. It's not a matter of saying, I can't do a lot. What you have to do is do your bit. Just like Mother Teresa, when she started off, all she did was bathe and bury the body of one unfortunate person. And then other people started to gather around her. And they started to bathe and bury and care for her. So, never do nothing because you think you can only do a little. Do what you can, and that is sufficient. So that's it. <laughs> what about my brother? Pardon? Uh, what about your brother? It, it would be absolutely appalling for me to comment on that. If you want me to depersonalise it, that would be a different matter. But okay. since I don't know your brother, and I can't possibly comment on what was in his heart and mind. As an example All right. of people to whom great misfortune arises at a point in their lives, maybe even young. Right. I, there's two ways of looking at it. Sorry, there are probably 22 ways of looking at it. But I'm going to give you two ways, and then you should just simply reflect on these, and perhaps any other ways that your mind considers. If you were a Christian, if you were a Christian, a true Christian, a real believer in Christianity, and you say to me, your brother was a good man. Well, a good man is rewarded. Because that's what Christians believe in. The good are rewarded. So your brother is now in heaven, according to Christian teaching. So he's actually in eternal bliss, whereas you have to listen to me. <laughs> so you've really got a raw deal. 
Now, you don't know. According to the Christian teaching, he may have been rewarded with an early death because of his goodness. He may have been taken to eternal bliss. That is a possibility. All right? Whereas you and I are still trying to earn our right to get there. So that is one possibility. And that is a very important thing to look at. We think that longevity on this earth is a tremendous advantage. How do you know this is in prison? Maybe dying is getting out of prison. You don't have to wash this thing all the time. Find shampoo that suits a particular hairstyle you have and all that sort of stuff. You get out. You don't have a body to take care of. Imagine what you'd be able to do if you didn't have a body. Imagine the amount of free time you'd have. <laughs> I'm saying, instead of thinking, what's on the menu today? <laughs> so that is one possibility. The other possibility which would involve the law of karma and therefore reincarnation. Just as if a man takes, say, if he drinks X number of pints on a Wednesday night, he has a hangover on a Thursday. If you want to really understand the hangover on Thursday, you also have to see the Wednesday night. If you see both together, you can say, now I understand. Is that alright? I can see that the headache was caused by a prior action. If man reincarnates, i.e. takes on more than one body, then it is not possible to judge within one body. Because if a man drinks on a Wednesday night, he doesn't pay for it in his next embodiment, he pays for it the next morning. But there may be other actions which he undertakes which cannot be fulfilled in one lifetime and therefore present themselves in the next lifetime. And us not seeing beyond one particular embodiment we're unable to see it as anything other than injustice or inexplicable. So that is the other possibility. And the third possibility is that it's just completely unfair. And it's random and chaotic and can't be explained. And the fourth one is it's a mystery. It is just and loving and everything like that, but it's a mystery to you and me and we can't understand it. So there are four possibilities. What I was quoting were from those who say that it is as you sow, so shall you reap. And just to say this, my own experience with regard to this is that it is useful not to consider others and whether they have been unjustly treated or not, but to start to consider oneself. And my, my experience is that the more I look at this, the more I realize that I draw both good and bad to myself that I'm unwilling now to blame others for what's happening that traffic jams do not make me angry I get angry at traffic jams the traffic jams are innocent that people do not make me angry that there's something within me which reacts to them so that's the sense of it gentlemen there Thank you, Shane. We just have a question on the individual responsibility. That at any one particular time, they could have a number of responsibilities. And what would be the governing thinking on, on which responsibility that one should respond to? Yes. Well, there are two ways of looking at this. You always re respond to the greatest need. Now, what often happens is our minds are overwhelmed by all that we have to do. And being overwhelmed or agitated, we can't see what one we should do first. Do you recognize that? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So there's a very useful thing to do, which will work, is whenever you find yourself in that situation, you simply put the question to the mind, what is the need now? As a totally open question, what is the need now? And the mind will tell you, and it'll be right. You may have preferred the answer, just sit there and read another newspaper and make yourself a cup of coffee. But whatever answer it gives, the mind in stillness does appreciate the need of the moment. So by putting that question, it brings it into the present moment and the mind will answer. And then you simply do it. And do not be concerned about the other 150 things you have to do. When you finish that one thing, if you then say, well, what is the need now? The mind will direct you to the next one. And if you do that, you will never feel flustered because the mind will only present one thing at a time to you. And you'll find that it will lead to great efficiency. So you'll be quite startled or stunned or surprised at the end of the day how much you've actually got through. You may find that these lists of things that you have to do are nothing to do with having a very busy life but with being a procrastinator. <laughs> a postponer. And so that by putting that question you'll find that you may not end up with a list which I'm sure will be of great benefit to those who live around you or with you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, it works. Kind of more a universal responsibility. An example being, say, if my neighbour wanted to walk through my front garden to take a shortcut to the GAA pitch, what's my responsibility there? Is this a, a real question now? As in, I'm giving an example. No, but if there is a neighbour who wants to walk through your garden to go to a GAA pitch. Yeah. Are you making it up? I'm making it up. But no, the make-up questions can't be answered. Because yeah. <laughs> I'll only give you a make-up answer. So it'll be no good. When the real question comes, then I'll give you a real answer. Okay, so, do you have a question? See if there is a real situation. Well, your responsibility to your neighbours or to other people around you and where does the boundaries lie? Because society has created certain boundaries, like, like fences and gates that weren't there in the past. But, you know, when it was okay for free, everyone yeah. to walk free and there was more trust. Well, in the spiritual world, there are no fences. Yeah. So don't have any fences in your heart. It's okay to have fences around land. It keeps dogs out or in and all sorts of things like that. But don't have any fences in your heart and have none, certainly, in the spirit world. Your job as a human being is to optimize the happiness of others. So whatever that leads to. If that leads to 50,000 people walking through your garden on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, well, then you are blessed with the opportunity of making so many people happy. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? Sorry, this gentleman here in the front. What I'm interested in is the concept of not putting your light under a bushel and allowing yourself to be number one. I'm having difficulty with the concept of ego. Ego can often be the, the bad thing, the thing that brings on anger and desire and so yes. forth. How can you, uh, you know, know what your talents truly are and allow them to shine without being egotistical? All right. Well, first of all, let's just take how not to be egotistical and then we look at how to know your talents. How not to be egotistical is you never claim the talent. 
they're not actually your talents they are talents expressing themselves through you so the telephone does not claim the speech the telephone instrument doesn't claim the speech which passes through it it is simply there as a medium for speech to take place you as an individual are a medium for this glorious creation and the idea is that you shouldn't be a blockage on that glorious manifestation so you're meant to be empty of ego so that whatever can pass through you does pass through you without getting too gross about it if you did things to your body so that the food would not pass through it so it just came in one end and wouldn't come out the other end it would be a disgusting mess after a short period of time well we are a disgusting mess after a short period of time because albeit the talents pour into us they don't pour out of us one of the reasons they don't pour out of us is because we think they're ours so if you take a young child with a teddy a child sometimes can destroy a teddy you know he can attack it with a scissors or cut off its ear or something like that and you ask him why and he says because it's mine possession gives him the right to abuse or destroy so the first thing to recognize is that you are being honored with a talent whatever talents there happen to be there that's an honor and your job is to allow them to maximize themselves in expression in your life for the benefit of all so that's the first way you never claim a talent it's very obvious that they're not yours so that's that then how can you discover what your talents are i could say it's a bit late but that would be nasty <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, it would be both nasty and incorrect, because it's not too late, obviously. It's not even late. Your talents are revealing themselves to you all the time, but we ignore them because we're filled with desires for certain things. So let's say with regard to a career. The career for every human being is absolutely obvious. Absolutely obvious. it is shouting from the rooftops through every molecule of that person but the person distracts their mind and heart with the desire for power or prestige or money or security or all these things and with the mind looking over there it doesn't see the talent or the, say the career here so there are ways to do it the shankracharya said that in every human being there is a unique attribute talent or quality everybody has one and that is what they have to offer the world to either serve god or serve the universe it is their competitive advantage and it is where their satisfaction lies now everybody has it so one person it might be that they're a great talker for another person it might be that they're a great listener because we can't have all talkers we have to have some listeners and some talkers so it's it's not necessarily overt it could be that there's a remarkable equanimity or steadfastness or it could be something like pavarotti and you know, the capacity to sing magnificently but what you'll find is that it's not held in your mind so if you use your mind to find it you'll never find it does that make sense you never find your career in your mind it'd be like trying to find a wife using your mind 
and you say she needs to be five foot six, you know, and whatever it is, you'd end up with this appalling monster of a creature. <laughs> but you can tick off all the things. So it's a bit like Oscar Wilde said, if you marry a woman for her money, you will earn every penny of it. <laughs> And if you choose your career for money, you will earn every penny of it with the sweat of your brow. But if you do what you love, then you will never work. It won't be work. It will never be work. You will be free of work forever, which is what everybody wants. So you must look to your heart, not to the mind. Now, how does the heart tell us? The heart will let you know it's what you do when you have nothing to do. When there are no have-tos. So we just let's make it financial. Let's say you won the Euro lottery and the pot was 60 million or some reasonable figure that could keep all your so-called desires fully satisfied for an entire lifetime. So you did not have to work for the sake of money. What would you do? Then you would do what you love to do because you don't have to do anything. And it's what you would do if you didn't have to do anything. That's your heart telling you what to do. So that is one way. You see it when, say, a man has nothing to do. What are they drawn to? A young man came to me about his career. He was about 30 years of age and he had worked as a chef. He was a master chef and had worked in excellent restaurants both in Switzerland and in Dublin. So he was very good at the job. But he came to me and he said he hated it. He hated it and he couldn't go on. And I asked him, well, what's in your heart? What would you like to do? And he couldn't tell me. So I said to him, when you go into a bookshop, which shelf do you go to? He says, I go to the aeronautics shelf. And I buy magazines about planes. And I said, so when you're going into work, say, on the dart, I said, you're not reading about the lives of great chefs or menu of the month type of thing, right? You're there reading about aeroplanes. So I said to him, has that been there with you always? And he said, every Sunday, I was one of those people who used to stand by the fence in Dublin Airport, watching planes land and saying, oh, that's a Model CFX2 with such and such an engine and you know, such and such a striping or something like that. He said, I could spend hours watching planes come in and uh, take off. He said he wanted to become a pilot. I said, why didn't you? He said, well, my eyesight wasn't good enough to become a commercial pilot. And I said, well, what about becoming a crop duster. Maybe you wouldn't need the same eyesight to become a crop duster. And I said, have you checked into that? I said, does it have to be like a 747 with 300 passengers or will any plane do? He said, any plane. So I said, find out what the requirement for a crop duster is. Or I said, some of these Eastern European countries may not have the same standards. And I said, as long... <laughs> <laughs> So I said, on the basis that you're not going to endanger your life or the lives of others, check out again, you see. 
he said to me that he'd even thought of working in the canteen at Dublin Airport so that he could be close to planes. He said, I'd even sweep hangars just to be close to planes. So it was expressing itself all the time. All the time. And anybody watching him would have seen that this man was keenly interested in aeroplanes. I also put it to him, by the way, did he have to be a pilot? And he said, no. So he could, there was lots of other functions where you may not need the same level of eyesight. Anyway, it was agreed between him and me that he would go off, research all these things, and come back to me six months later. So he didn't come back, and he became a barrister. <laughs> he will be a miserable barrister all his life, turning his back on what his heart wanted. That is the other thing that's very important. We have a fear of shining. We have a fear of our own light. That it's so big and it's so glorious that it might mean we would live a remarkably big life. And with that would come great responsibility. There is a tremendous capacity in the human being to turn his back on it in order to have a small, quiet life. That light, when it shines brightly, are we not kind of brought up to think that that shouldn't happen? Yes, absolutely. You see, the trouble is that the ego should not dominate. And so it's good to encourage people, if there is a strong ego there, to dissolve it ideally, but to hold it in check, at least at a minimum, but ideally to dissolve it. There's a difference between your true self and your ego. And your true self is not for curtailment. It's for glorious expression. And you see this in the child. The child doesn't curtail itself. When the child wants to cry, it'll keep the entire house awake. And when it laughs, it laughs without restriction. What happens is you and I become more and more cautious. So we live cautious lives. I think the Shankaracharya said this, we should live divinely reckless lives. Wouldn't that be fantastic, wouldn't it? <laughs> A divinely reckless life. Imagine if you could ask your children, you say, do you think my life is divinely reckless? <laughs> Imagine if they answered yes. <laughs> what a great life that would be for them to answer yes. You know, when children look at your life or my life, they become religious. <laughs> they say, please God, please don't let it turn out like that. <laughs> it is a serious question on your part you need to look at yourself you need to see what does the mind or heart keep going to when there's nothing to do the mind will go to certain areas again and again and again and that shows that they're deeply held in the heart i.e. they're valuable to you you can ask questions like if I had nothing to do what would I do if I had no need for money what would I do if the answers don't come, then you can ask those who know you and love you. And they can see it. It really is the job of the parent. And I was saying it's a bit late. It really is a bit late for the parents. Parents should do this. You should watch your child. You watch the child. You see what it's drawn to. Some children will be drawn to sport. Others will be drawn to an intellectual world. Other ones love to relate or serve others. And you watch and you watch and you watch. And the child from conception, which you may not 
be able to read the signs like, well, it's in the womb, but certainly outside the womb, it's telling you all the time, this is who I am, this is who I am. And the idea as a parent is you read those signs and you support its nature. You absolutely support it so that it can have a fulfilled life. But you can do it yourself. So, that's it. Yes, if you'd like to pass it back to that lady. I quote Jesus saying, Yes, all right. Well, first of all, it doesn't say in the Bible that he got angry. The word anger is never mentioned. What it says is he overturned tables and he did all sorts of things but it never says he got angry. And you want to be careful about you and I trying to look into the heart of Jesus and determine whether there was anger there or not. That would be lacking a certain humility, I think, on our part for us to judge what the state of the heart was while those actions were taking place. So it never says he got angry. And, and this is not proof, but to me it is inconceivable that somebody on being nailed to the cross could turned to those who brought about this and said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, and at the same time tried to beat up a few moneylenders. <laughs> right? It would mean that Jesus was a serious schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, but there may be a need for outward appearance of force in order to make a point. There was a great Christian mystic called Meister Eckhart, Great, great Christian mystic, magnificent man. A lot of his sermons have been recorded and translated. He has a very interesting interpretation of that particular scene in the Bible. Because the way we would normally interpret it, and I'm not saying it's an invalid interpretation, but the way we would normally interpret it is that the moneylenders were bad. And so they had to be cleared away from the temple. Meister Eckhart's take on it was they weren't bad at all. You don't find bad people hanging around temples. They were good people. And it's not only badness you have to get rid of if you want to enter the temple of God. You have to get rid of goodness as well. What he said was that Jesus cleared the temple of the good. So that both the good and the bad were gone. How might you reconcile that with, say, Christian teaching? Well, it says that the fall of man was the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that okay? It wasn't the knowledge of evil, it was the knowledge of good and evil. So, for man to ascend again, he has to transcend or go beyond the knowledge of good and evil. So, it's a very interesting way of interpreting that story. So it would not make sense that the Son of God could lose his temper. That just doesn't make sense. Oh, you said about reaction. Yes. The thing about reaction is that reaction is related to the event and something personal is added to it. For example, let's say you have a car and I have a car. And, and let's say you drove here tonight and both of us go to where your car is and there's a one inch scratch on the driver's door which wasn't there before you came into the talk. 
on the basis that I am still impure and all those wonderful things, I will simply see a one-inch scratch. You will see the decline of the Western civilization, <laughs> right? And remarkable injustice. You will add something to it. You won't see a one-inch scratch. It'll be my car. And it's so unfair because I don't scratch other people's cars. And I pay my taxes. You will add a million things. So reaction is never what's there. It's what's there plus something else. Now the way the Shankaracharya would describe it is that in darkness you might see, let's say, a six foot tree stump. But in darkness you might mistake it for a mugger. Is that okay? It's a particular shape, tree stump. And you think it's a mugger. So you experience fear and all sorts of things. But it's a tree stump. So the tree stump is X and Y is what you've imagined over it. And it's what you've added over it which produces the reaction of fear, anger, etc., etc. So reaction is never useful because something has been added and that addition distorts the value. It either undervalues or overvalues. So you can never get it right. There's no such thing as a correct reaction. Reaction per se must be an understatement or an overstatement. But response is always to the need. Whenever you are in a situation, first of all, don't you bring what is personal to you to the situation. And if the other person is in an agitated state, help them to leave aside that which has been added so that you simply deal with what is. Is that okay? And if you do, then you will always meet the need. So your response will be perfect to the situation. And the interesting thing, being perfect, it will always be brand new. If you come up with a very similar situation the next day, it may produce a completely different outcome. You won't deal with it habitually. Yeah, that's how it works. Thanks very much. All right. Yes, anybody else? When you were talking about the obnoxious lady that yes. I was working with, and you said to me that she should have been told that she was obnoxious. Now, in the work setting, A, I'd be afraid I'd get a few 45. B, I'd be afraid that I may push this person over the edge. Yes. Or I'd make her more obnoxious. So, in with what would you have said to the person telling her she was obnoxious to make her look at herself? Yeah. First of all, the thing you need to understand is the advice was given to a particular man, he happened to be my son, who's quite capable of being charming and delivering accurate, succinct messages. So I may not have said that to another person, but to him, he has the capacity to do this. There's a certain integrity and uprightness about him that would allow him to deliver such a message. So that's the first point. The message is only for the particular person. It's not a, every time you come across an obnoxious person, tell them. <laughs> we might have a few dead bodies around the place, right? So that's the first thing. But there are certain principles. The first thing to realize is that it is your duty to that person. It's not that they are driving you insane and you're going to tell them in the hope that they might reform so that you can have a quieter or a nicer life. It's not for your sake. It's for their sake. It's as if they were carrying an emotional disease 
which they would be much better off without. It's out of love for them. So the first thing is that it must be for their welfare. And your speech must convey that. Both the sound of your voice and the words you choose. That it's for that person's welfare. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is that you must not speak as if you are free from that particular deficit of nature. That you're not some glorious manifestation of humanity completely devoid of these faults. So what you're doing is you're not speaking from on high. You're meeting the person where they are in a completely non-judgmental way. Have you ever said to somebody, look, by the way, there's a thread coming out of the end of your skirt or something like that. That's not a criticism. You're telling somebody so that they know. It's for their sake. So the sound of your voice and the words and also the timing must be excellent. It's not a matter of that I can give you a script, which you would say, because then it wouldn't be natural. If your heart is in the right place, then you'll find that the words have the greatest possibility of being effective. Now, the person may still reject them. They may say, how dare you speak to me like that? But you have done your job. The way the Shankaracharya put it, he said, words when delivered in love and when received in love are most effective. Now, your responsibility is to deliver them in love. The other person's responsibility is to receive them in love. But you can help them to receive them in love by making sure that they are delivered in love. I'm sure, let's say, your father or mother, there were many times, or at least a few occasions, when they corrected you. And it was very obvious that they were considering your best interests rather than they were simply irritated with you. And you'll find that those words have stayed with you. And they still guide you. Because they were delivered in love. You see, somebody has failed in their responsibility that this lady has turned out as she has turned out. Because everybody's silently talking about her. She leaves the room and they all say, isn't she terribly obnoxious? It's not fair. It's not fair to this lady that she's allowed to remain in the way that she is manifesting. So she has to be helped. Now, it may even be done very firmly. Sometimes, say, as a boss, now I know this was not a boss subordinate situation, but sometimes as a boss, you have to threaten people. You have to say to them, I've given you three warnings and once more, and that's the end of the relationship. So, it depends on the person. Sometimes you deliver a message very, very gently. Sometimes you deliver it very firmly. It's whatever will work for that person. And there's always a way that it will work for the person. The way the Shankaracharya put it is, you must learn to speak the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruth. Do you hear that? You must learn to speak the truth pleasantly, not pleasant untruth. Now we do an awful lot of pleasant untruth. And we can be sometimes brutal with the truth. But we need to learn to speak the truth pleasantly. That would be excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much.